Our scripture reading today will be in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. You can find it in page 570 under the Bible um, that's under your seat. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I, have, I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has become my strength, he says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Port City, so glad you're here with us. Um, we are currently in a series about Advent, which if you're not familiar with what that is, Advent is the season of anticipation of the arrival, which is essentially what the word means in old Latin there. Um, this is a season of waiting and anticipation. It's one of those unique seasons where culturally most people are preparing for something, for something. Like gifts are bought, plans are made, and lots of questions are asked. Am I right? How many more days until Christmas? I get that one every day. Uh, what should I uh, get so-and-so? Uh, do you think we could do this thing? Will it snow? I don't know. Uh, this season is that, it, it's that one that looks to the future and the culmination of the arrival. Now, who arrives depends on, you know, what you're talking about culturally. But as much as we like to think that this is just true of the Advent season, it's not, right? The future is of constant concern for us as a people, right? Have you ever wanted to know the future? Ever, wanted, ever thought that? Man, I would just love to know what's going to happen. I do all the time with TV shows, right? What's going to happen? That's what gets me back, right? It's how J.J. Abram has me every time, um, <laughs> But, you know, why do we want to know the future? Have thought about that? It's, you know, maybe it's something like we want to plan for it. Maybe that planning for it is like I'm going to try to plan to avoid that, you know. Or maybe I'm planning to control that. We're going to uh, make outcomes happen the way I want them, right? Or maybe it's the deal with it factor. This is me a lot of times. Like, oh, I just got to, I want to know so I can deal with it, you know. Um, or maybe it's the capitalize on it. You know, how can I make uh, money on being first to something, right? Maybe, maybe knowing the future gives us an edge, right? Take, for example, uh, something called the Gartman Letter. If you're not a big finance world, you've never heard of this, but I thought this was interesting. Uh, so it's a letter that's published by Dennis Gartman since 1987, up until really just a few years. And what happened was is people would receive an email with this letter and, and have daily commentary on the global capital markets. And they would receive it every day at 5.30 a.m. without fail. And the, uh, the letter basically addressed political, economic, and technical trends from both long-term and short-term perspectives within the, the financial markets. And the reason why that's a big deal 
is because this letter essentially promised investors and financial-minded people an edge to investment and trading. Like, basically, one, it's, like a, it's like one source's like peek into the financial future, a financial Notre Dame, if you will, right? So in the same way, many times, things like biblical prophecy, like we have here, um, have been a, a way to get ahead, a way to, to get an edge on people. It's almost like an ancient Gartman letter, if you will, prophecy. But is that the point of something like what we, we find today? Advent is, you know, it's, it's an interesting season because it challenges us to not only look to the past, but look to the future as well. It's almost this backwards-forwards movement. You ever notice that, you know, in all the Advent calendars, even if you've just done one one day, just one, you're right? Say so you start out like, we're going to do this every day, and then you hit one day. Um, that's great. But every single one of those things always hits that point um, where it basically it talks about the coming Messiah, the coming king, the coming servant. It shows us prophecy and fulfillment, prophecy and fulfillment. They have the pattern of looking back and then looking forward. It, that's what the Advent calendar does. That's what the season of Advent is all about. Today I want us to take a look at how Advent calls us in our waiting to listen to what God has done and will do. Advent calls us to listen to what God has done and will do. And in fact, notice that the first word in command of Isaiah 49 is listen. Listen. Listen to me, O coastlands, verse, in verse 1, and give attention, you peoples from afar. This is us. I don't know if you noticed. We're on the coast, and we're very far away from Israel. So, uh, I mean, this is a word for us, not only ancient, uh, you know, coastlands, but us as well. So let's listen in three turns. Let, we'll look at prophecy in general, and then we'll look at this particular prophecy, and then we'll look at how this prophecy still shapes the unfolding story that we live in. All right, so prophecy in general. Let's talk about it. What is prophecy? Because that's what our text is today. That's like what it actually is. Like Isaiah is a very strange, interesting book, but a lot of this section of it, it it's, it's prophecy. It's a prophetic word. This is a foretelling of, about the servant to come. Now, last week, um, we talked a lot about the historical context of this section of Isaiah, but today we're going to dive into this. Uh, before we dive into the second servant song, I want us to kind of understand, step back, and, and have some guardrails as to the characteristics of biblical prophecy in general. First thing, if you're taking notes, is biblical prophecy is always God-centered. Biblical prophecy is always God-centered. See, all biblical prophecy, will, uh, while concerning itself with many different matters, it's going to address this or that, it's always how those things relate back to God himself, always. Biblical prophecy is God-centered. It's always about what God has done, is doing, or is going to do. It's always about what's happening and how that relates to God, okay? So if you hear something strange and don't have anything to do with God, it's probably not biblical prophecy, Okay? Speak, uh, next thing, speaking what God tells them. Biblical prophecy is always speaking what um, God has said. See, Isaiah isn't shooting from the hip. He's not making stuff up. The Lord told Isaiah what to say. Every word penned here is from God. Faithful prophets only speak what God tells them to say. There are, you know, there are many examples of other prophets in Israel um, and Judah who would say something other than what God told them to say. And you know what they were labeled as? False prophets. 
They were telling false things. God didn't say that. I didn't say that. In fact, he would send another prophet and say, I didn't say that. Um, that you see that over and over. So it's not like there was no check to like, is that really from God? No, someone actually did it. And then they said, no, it's not from God. So a faithful prophet speaks what God tells them. Now, how did this actually happen? How did God speak to it? That's unclear in, uh, in some spots, especially in, in the case of Isaiah. But God spoke to Isaiah, and Isaiah shared it with the people and the leaders of the nation. So they only spoke what God told them. Third thing, biblical prophecy called, uh, they, it calls the people of God back to God. All right? So it calls the people back to God. The overarching purpose of the prophets was always kind of the same thing although it was in different iterations, uh, is basically come back to the living God. The prophets were always calling the people back to the, the person of God. The prophets were constantly contending for the affections of the people of God. There were actions that they wanted them to stop doing for sure, okay? They were just like, hey, don't do that. Hey, stop this, whatever. But ultimately, all it pointed back to was that they have left uh, the true God. There, the, their actions were actually demonstrating that ultimately um, they have departed from the, the personal living God, and the prophets were just calling them back to God himself. Fourth, uh, biblical prophecy is, a f- prophecy is a foretelling of what God is going to do. Many of the prophets' uh, messages would contain elements of what God is, is going to do. The prophets would often state what, God's gonna, what's, what God says is going to happen in the future. Now, how can that be? So, I mean, if you really back up and say, like, okay, you mean the guy's going to show up and he's going to tell me what's going to happen? You know, because, you know, why, how could that actually be a possibility as far as, like, just, just human understanding? And the, re, and, and the answer is because the one who holds the future told them. That's literally the logic of it. They know the future, they hear the future, not because there's something special about them, but because God told them. If you struggle with that idea, and that's fair, that's okay, um, the idea, you know, the idea of someone knowing the future or being able to foretell things that, like the coming of Jesus, for instance, consider this. If there's a God who created all things, and he, and he created time itself, time, the concept of one moment after the next, that's his idea. This God, being the creator of time, can enter into it, and, and he can operate outside it. If God is outside time, and in it if he wants to, he can see every moment of history, past, present, and future equally and vividly. It's kind of like you and I and how we like to watch our favorite TV shows. I'd be like, let's go to the Thanksgiving episode of Gilmore Girls and let's watch that bad boy on repeat, right? That's something we can do and we can basically take a segment out of that. Well, in a small way, we see every, every episode, every part of a TV show um, can be seen at our disclosure and looking at other things. But God is not like us. That breaks down because he can see all time equally vividly at all times. So to tell someone in a historical moment what's going to happen isn't that far-fetched. It's logical and consistent with the God of the Bible. He knows the future because he sees it. He's there. He causes it to be. Um, and so just a, a food for thought. All right, so that's biblical prophecy in general, but I do want to address the prophets themselves um, more specifically. There's two things about um, Isaiah as a prophet and the, those like him. One is that they're limited by what God says. Okay, if you read this, you, like, you have to understand they're just men. They're just people like you and I. They're not unique or special in any way. They have been chosen by God to share the words of God. And many of them lived 
the exact same calamities and hardships that they had to speak about. If you read Jeremiah, you're like, bro, that's tough. He had to walk in the same things he was saying was going to happen. Um, and so that, they're limited in that way. Oftentimes what God wanted them to share wasn't fun, it wasn't comfortable, and, and most, most of the time it made them widely unpopular. Like, get him out of here. Um, and Isaiah himself, tradition has it, was in fact murdered. Um, they shared what they shared because it's what God said. That's really the short of it. Second thing, they're limited by their own time period, just like you and I, right? It seems obvious, but it's not like Isaiah knew everything about the future. He, do, he didn't. He probably wasn't always sure of what he was talking about, right? He was declaring this will happen. On, he wasn't declaring that this would happen on this date or, um, per se, or, or he's just basically saying it will happen. I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's kind of like this, right? But have you ever thought for a minute why the whole prophecy thing to begin with? Why? Why don't you just do it? Isaiah 48, 5 actually tells us why. God says, if you, if you look back uh, um, in your Bible there, it says this in verse 5 of chapter 48 of Isaiah, Isaiah. says, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. God declares what he is going to do before he does it so that you so that we, you and me, we all know that he was the one who did it. That's why he, that's why he tells us beforehand. It's kind of like this. I don't know if you ever played pool, but I was looking up the rules, um, and I always thought it was strange, but this is actually a rule. You technically have to call the pocket that you are going to put the eight ball in in order to win. If you don't call the pocket, you don't win. If you call that pocket and go to that pocket, you lose. Like, that's the rules of pool. Kind of the same thing. It, it's, it's where God is basically saying, hey, I'm going to do this. And when it happens, like, all things for uh, this, you, you should know that it was me who did it, and I did it on purpose. See, prophecy is meant to highlight God's intentions for the future. So when it happens, you turn and praise the one who controls all things and works all things for the praise of his glory. Now, let's look at the, this particular prophecy. So that's prophecy in general. But now let's look at this one specifically. What does the prophecy say? What has God said about the servant this week? And what we find here is more akin, um, as a kind of an illustration, it's more akin to this artistic movement. If I don't know if you've ever seen this at uh, Chrysler Hall or Chrysler Museum, but you should go check it out. Um, there's a movement of art called Impressionism, and it's not realism. So what we see here is more like Impressionism and not realism. If you're not sure what Impressionism is, let me, let me remind you. It's those old paintings that where you, when, you, when you look at them, they're basically a bunch of dots, or they're a bunch of brush strokes. If you're real close on them, you actually can't see what they are. But you step back um, and you see like, oh, okay. It's kind of an impression of the scene that, was paint, you know, that I'm painting, but it's not every detail. It's the gist, it's the impression of uh, what the artist was trying to get across. But what's interesting though, is an impressionist, um, they would always add a, just a little bit more detail in those parts that they wanted you to see. And that's kind of how it works here. It's the same, same is kind of true here. Most of these details, they're kind of vague, if we're honest. But they make a lot of sense when we start looking at them in the light of Jesus' first coming. So it's kind of like why we can say, oh, yes, I see how that matches up here. Look at this, yes. But now let's take a look at like what, uh, what, how that plays out in uh, Isaiah. We'll look at two things. We're going to look at the nature of the servant 
And then we're going to look at the mission of the servant. So let's look at the nature of the servant first. And back to verse 1, it says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. The first thing we learn about the servant is that he will be human. Human. He will come from the womb just like everyone else in the history of the world, except one, Adam. Uh, from the womb, the servant already had a purpose. We, we see this, that the Lord had called him to. And we, also look, uh, we should also look for one who God names. Sound familiar? If we look ahead, so that, this is us look, listening back, but let's listen ahead, right? Let's listen forward. And we should see that Jesus was born of a woman just like everyone else. And God named him by telling Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. Wasn't her idea, wasn't a family name. God named him. Right, so we see that, that kind of breaking through. The next thing we see about the servant is that um, he has effective speech and he's ready for war when the time comes. Verse 2, he says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. See, here we learn something interesting about the servant. The servant's mouth is like a sharp sword. Right? It cuts and, it, and it's effective. The servant is like a, a polished arrow but hidden away until the right time. But now, okay, so we got that. But if we look ahead, we're going to see something pretty wild. Paul picks up this idea in Romans 5, at 6, and he says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, Jesus was the secret weapon to save the ungodly, right? What's even more surprising is we look even more ahead is that we see in Revelation 1.16, and it says this, in his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the, shining, uh, the sun shining in full strength. The servant is ready for war. But against what? To what end? Let's keep listening. Next thing, verse 3. The servant will display the beauty of the Lord. He says this, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. So two things here. One, it seems the servant is called Israel right here, right? That's kind of weird. If you're reading Isaiah, you're like, wait, are we talking about a person? Or are we talking about a group? Are we talking about the country? Or are we talking about an individual? The answer a little bit is yes, right? More, more than likely, this means that the servant will be a representative of Israel. Hence why the name here. And as was said last week, the servant would do what Israel could not do. But notice, Israel will be the vehicle for God being glorified. But what does that mean? Well, if, if you're looking at your Bible, you see this little a number, and you go to the bottom, and it gives you an alternate translation, which I love. It says, uh, the alternate translation is, will display the beauty of the Lord. Love that. The servant will make the beauty of God evident. Isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection showed us the beauty of God, the exact imprint of his nature as the uh, New Testament writers. They pick up this idea right here, and we see this fleshed out in the New Testament. Next thing, uh, the servant will be favored in God's eyes and filled with God's strength. It says this, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Think back to the gospel accounts. Isn't that what was expressed as Jesus' baptism? This is my son, whom I am well pleased. Isn't Jesus portrayed and seen as one empowered by God, the anointed one? 
That's what we find, and that's what um, Isaiah is saying and pushing us um, as we, look, as we listen back and we listen forward. Uh, last thing about the, uh, the, servant, the nature of the servant. The servant is the chosen one of God. It says in the very last verse of 7, it says, The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. The servant is the chosen one, the one who will bring about the mission that God has called him to. So let's, let's keep listening and let's look at the mission. That was the nature of the servant. Now let's look at the mission of the servant. It says this. The first thing about uh, the mission is that he will bring back Jacob. The mission, it, it's not really a mystery. It's actually, that's one of those things in there that's a crystal clear detail, right? The mission of the servant is pretty clear. It's, it, it's in verse 5 and 6. It says, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. And then jump down, he says, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. If you're not familiar, though, with these terms, Jacob and Israel, they're interchangeable. Here's why. Jacob, being the son of Isaac, who was the son of, of uh, uh, Abraham, the name Israel basically is a throwback, if you remember, for when he was wrestling with this stranger in the pitch black. And he wrestled all night. And it turned out that he was wrestling with God in some way, whether it's a pre-incarnate Christ or whatever, no one knows. Angel of the Lord, I don't know. But the person who wrestles him basically renames him Israel. He also touches his hip and he limps the rest of his life. But it, and here's what Israel means. It means one who struggles with God. See, the found, founding relationship of this people is a wrestling, um, and the mission of the servant is no different. Catch that? Like Israel, one who wrestles with God, and the very mission of this servant who represents Israel will be one that wrestles with the people in order to, to see that. The servant is to stand in as a representative of Israel and bring them back to God. They have wandered off into idolatry, but the servant brings them back. But then everything just takes a turn. It just takes a, a drastic turn. And if, if you haven't read a lot of the Bible, this is very, very unique in what Isaiah is doing. The mission does something unexpected. So let's look and listen um, at verse 6. It says, it says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserve of Israel. That is the mission. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's too light a thing. I don't know about you. I don't know if you're like a weightlifter or whatever, uh, but I, uh, I do, I, I hit some weights. Um, but uh, there's that moment uh, when uh, you go like, you know, you're, you just know you're dogging it. You get on the bicep and go, eh, okay, I could probably do more. That's what, that's what God's doing here. Man, we could just bring back Israel. We could, we could. But I can lift heavier. And that's what he's doing. He says, it's, it's, it's too light a thing just bringing back Jacob. It's not heavy enough. God is saying, I will bring back the nations. <laughs> so the servant will be the means of salvation to the end of the earth. This scales the mission of the servant up to a global proportion. Everybody. This is what, this was, was meant to be Israel's goal all along, as it turns out. Like, they were meant to collectively show God's beauty to the world. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But the mission of the servant takes another turn. Because you think, like, okay, awesome. Global takeover. Got it. You know? But then we look down at verse 6, and we see something else. The mission, the, the, the mission of the servant will, will not go quite as we think it would. It says this in verse 6. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, 
the servant of rulers. The ser- it seems like that this bringing back will not be met with acceptance and excitement by the people, but rather rejection. The servant was to be despised and abhorred. Was this not what happened to Jesus? He was met with the rejection and was sentenced to die with the consent of the people themselves. Crucify him. But further, we look at verse 4. And this one, if you, when we read it, you're probably thinking like, well, how can this be Jesus? But let's look. It says verse 4. It says, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord. And my recompense or my compensation with God. See, the servant will seem to fail. He'll seem to fail. Yet he remains confident that God will reward him despite his rejection. If you look at what Jesus' earthly ministry consisted of, it was three years of healings, miracles, large crowds. It was awesome. Twelve disciples, but one betrayed him, right? And then it starts doing this, it seems. Then it all came to an abrupt end. Basically, he was put to death. He was just Put the death on the cross, and everyone who was following the crowds, even the twelve, they scattered and they abandoned him. Seemingly failed. But yet, things take another turn in verse 7. Like, it just keeps making, it's like a J.J. Abrams episode. You know, you think something is not going to happen, but it does. Look at at verse 7. It says, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. It seems that ultimately the servant will be honored by everybody. In fact, I think Paul picks up this very idea and that's why he writes Philippians 2 the exact way he does. That every knee, every tongue confess and every knee will bow and, and confess that Jesus is the Lord. That's, that's what's happened. I think what, we look for, what looked like humiliation results in exaltation. So this is the prophecy. This is, this is what uh, Isaiah gives us. It has all these twists and turns to it. Again, there's this impression, but we're, unless you see the very life of Jesus, it makes no sense until you look forward. But, we, but here's, here's the thing. This is what it says in a nutshell. There will be a human servant that will come at, the ju- at just the right time. He will display the beauty of God. He will be God's chosen and favored instrument to do battle and not just bring back Israel, but the nations to the very end of the earth. And he will seemingly fail, but in the end, kings and princes will bow down to him. That is our prophecy today. That's what we have. That's what the servant is to be. God, through Isaiah, revealed this to the people of Israel long ago and to us today, so that when it happens, you will know that he did it. See, this Advent, let's listen to what God said he was going to do. Jesus coming and dying on a Roman cross was no accident, or just how things worked out. Well, you know, everything was planned. It wasn't Rome. It wasn't the Jewish mob. It was the living God of all creation behind it. This is what Advent pushes us to hear once more. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Christmas is coming. It's coming. The servant is coming. He will bring us back to God. I I can't help but think about uh, this uh, moment in the Chronicles of Narnia, and for some of us, you know, we can kind of feel a bit like this, this moment in Narnia, uh, if you remember. It's from the Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe. And he wrote this line, always stuck with me, and it sticks with a lot of people all the time. He says, it's always winter, 
but it's never Christmas. And it can seem like that for some of us as we get to the holiday seasons. It can seem like Christmas never comes. We get here, it's all this anticipation, and then the day arrives, and we're like, he's not here. Where is he? It can be discouraging, or maybe Chris, the hopes of, of the things that we, we put on Christmas that have nothing to do with God himself. They disappoint us when we get there. We open the gift, and it's just not as shiny and cool as I thought it was. But we get to the family gathering, and it just, it just didn't have that, that it factor that I thought it would. We, we, we didn't get to do that one thing that we thought we were. We got sick, right? But let's take a, a clue from Paul in this. If you haven't noticed, Paul actually loves Isaiah 49. I'm pretty sure he took it with him wherever he went because he quotes it all over, all over the place. Paul loves 49. He, he basically picks up in verse 8. We didn't read this, but if you look at verse 8 now, and he, said, and he says this in 2 Corinthians. As you're looking at verse 8 of, uh, of uh, chapter uh, 49, I'm going to read to you 2 Corinthians 6. He says this, Working together with, them, with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, here we go, In a favorable time I listened to you. This is verse 8. And in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. See, the servant Jesus has already come once. That's the joy of Christmas. Like, we are walking through this exercise of, of anticipation so that we can remember that he has come. We are not, but we are not listening in the same way Isaiah's audience was. It's happened. He has come. Now is the favorable time, and now is the day of salvation. What's even more interesting is what we find next, right? So, because And this kind of takes us into that third part here. How does this prophecy still shape the unfolding story we are living in? There's something interesting that Paul does with this text when he, when he quotes it in Acts 13. I told you, he loves it. Pretty sure he had it memorized. He applies it as a command from the Lord, and he applies it to his own word ministry. Look at this, Acts 13, verses 46 through 47. It says this, well, a little further. And he says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and here we go, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Sound familiar? And when the Gentiles heard this, love this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. How beautiful is that, right? Here's what we learn from Paul in the way that he quotes Isaiah's prophecy. The servant's mission is now our mission. The bringing of salvation to the nations and the ends of the earth is made possible through the servant, but it is those who listen to the servant that enact it. How is that possible? How is that possible? How can Paul rightly apply this prophecy, which is clearly about the servant of the Lord, right? About, the, about, about his ministry. How can he do that? I got one big theological idea for you and one command and then we'll be done. Here's the big theological idea. And it's a doozy. It's big. I'm not even going to do it justice. But we're going we're gonna to hit the iceberg, right? The reason why Paul can apply this text to his ministry is because by grace through faith and repentance, we are united with Christ. 
You see, the way Paul puts it over and over and over in his letters is he says this all the time. We are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And in Christ actually means multiple things in Paul's letters, as you can imagine. But here are just kind of a few things to summarize some of that. I, can't, I cannot possibly summarize all this for you. You have to go read the New Testament. Uh, but just as Jesus was chosen, because we are united to him by faith, we are chosen. We are chosen in him, according to Ephesians 1. Just as Jesus stood in, 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 as the representative of Israel, by faith, he is our representative. See, Jesus' life counts for us. His, doubt, his death is our death, and his resurrection will be our resurrection because we are found in him, in Christ. Anything that Jesus did is counted to us because we are in him. See, when Jesus died, we died. When Jesus was raised we, uh, from the dead, we were raised. This is literally what Paul says in Ephesians. All our actions can be, done, uh, can be done in Christ. The life we live is lived by faith in Christ. Because we are in Christ, I hadn't said that enough yet, we take up his mission as well. In fact, it's even more formal than that because even if you didn't have what Paul wrote, Jesus, at the end of the Matthew, gives you the Great Commission. And right, it's right before he ascends into heaven, he passes on his mission to us to make disciples of all nations. You see, the thing about Isaiah 49 is that two things have not quite happened yet. Did you catch that? There's two things in there that didn't happen at the first coming. What were they? Kings and princes have not bowed down to Jesus directly. And salvation has not quite gone to the end of the earth. Not quite. There are still some things left undone, and this means that being a light to the nations is our task, just like Paul said in Acts 13. This season, remember that we are to be a light to the nations, but what does that mean? What does that mean? Why the analogy of light? Light shines, it reveals things, right? Light shines and it shows the way. We are to be light, and in doing so, salvation comes to the ends of the earth. You notice that? We are light to the nations, and then he says the salvation will reach the end of the earth. That's interesting. Notice what happens in Acts 13. Again, let's look back again because I love this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. See, being light means sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means declaring the great news that Christ has come. The chosen Messiah that takes away our sins. Jesus has come and lived the life that we could not live. And he died the death that we deserve. See, Jesus came and he stood in our place for our sin. And everything that was necessary to save us from the penalty of our rebellion against God has been dealt with in Jesus. And if we acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior and turn from that rebellion and to him, we can be saved. Right? Like the song goes, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Is this great news? This great news comes as light. But why does it come as light? Why the, why the illustration? I think, or the analogy of light. I think it's, I think C.S. Lewis was on to something. I, I remember reading this years ago and it just, I just, I never got quite got over it. He wrote this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has, <clears throat> has risen not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. You see, Jesus not only saves his people, but does something in them. 
He changes them from the inside out. It's not just enough that we say Jesus died for our sins. There's more there. See, if you, if you can imagine for just a second that, uh, that humans are like a mirror that has light shining on it. So if you just think for a second that humans are kind of like a mirror with a light shining on it. And that light is kind of like the glory of God. But because of our sinfulness, this light gets distorted, right? And it's dimmed, and it doesn't shine as it should. What Jesus does is he unites us to himself and begins to change us from the inside and basically puts the mirror right again so that now it begins to reflect what we were always meant to do. This means we, we begin not only, we, we, it means that we not only declare the good news of Jesus in our place and he in ours, but everything about us begins to change. Suddenly, we begin to understand that our lives are not our own. We may not, we may not stop doing normal things, but they begin to have a reference back to Jesus, right? So how we handle our bodies is now subject to how God intended them to be used. How we handle our money is now informed, to how, informed by how generous God has been to us. How we handle power is no longer for our own gain, but stands in relation to how gentle and kind God has been to us. See, it means we don't get to determine who we are. God does. We don't create our own identity. We receive our identity, and that's not a very popular idea. But fundamentally, how we see everything is different. It's like someone turned the light on in the room, and now we can truly see things as they, they actually are. Life itself is reoriented. That's good news. Here's how Paul would say it, though. He said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See the personalness there. See, the light we, we bring is not just a message for when you die, but for life right now. We are set free to live a new life by the power of God's Spirit. See, this is the light that we are to bring to the nations. You see, we are, the, we are like the prophet as well telling others of what God has done and what it's going to do. You ever realize that? Like, Advent pushes us to be a people that has to listen backwards and forwards constantly. When we go to actually share um, the great hope of Jesus, the only way you get there is you talk about what God has done and you talk about what he's going to do. See, notice the the response. But notice the response from uh, the Gentiles again. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So for the most part, most of us here are not Jewish. I don't know everybody's background, but I'm not a gander. We're not Jewish. And we're not from the people of Israel. This Advent, we too must join our fellow Gentiles of Acts and rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. They rejoiced when they heard that it was for them. It's for us. They didn't have to be. The, the, the Hebrew Israelite servant came to save the people of God, and it was too light a thing. And by his grace, he said, I will save the nations. And that includes us. Otherwise, we would have never, ever heard it. And we must join the songwriter and, and saying, joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending the Son. Father, we, man, we praise you for the great salvation that is through Christ and Christ alone. We join the choir of angels to say glory to God in highest and peace on earth, God. 
Father, we know that this didn't happen by accident, but was your plan before the world began. Father, thank you for being a, a God of order, a God who plans. Father, thank you for controlling all things and that we can rest in you. We don't have to have it all figured out because you do. Father, thank you for the hope of Jesus. Father, help us to live into your command of being light to the nations. Father, would you help us to be a light right here in our city? Would you help us be a light in our neighborhoods? Father, would you make us a people that fundamentally sees life and all its cares differently? Father, would you use this season to turn our hearts to yourself that we might live up in and out, displaying your beauty to our great city. That's for your beautiful name.